Uh, the start of the week and marking the 100th anniversary of Michael Collins' death on the radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. I had that very strong Collins thing where people would come up to my dad and say, you're Michael Collins' nephew and all that sort of stuff. I remember your dad, I remember your grandfather. So all that emotion, it's very strong. So there's lots of, you know, reasons why you might not need a coffin. But if you've decided you do want one, you can come and decorate one of our flat pack coffins, which then at a point of need are put together with an Allen key. But there is a trade at the moment in getting bulletproof backpacks for kids. And there was another report earlier this week about a a, a mother who made a a Kevlar dress for her five-year-old daughter. And we'll start in the morning. And Ryan Tuberty was marking the death of Michael Collins in Cork 100 years ago. And a very good morning to you all. Ryan Tuberty with you live from the city of Cork this Monday morning. What an auspicious day it is today in history in the air here in Cork. It's the 22nd of August 2022, 100 years ago to the very day that Michael Collins was assassinated. And we are in the Imperial Hotel in Cork City. It's a place we've been to many, many times. Uh, But today in particular, it is uh, different and it feels different and it is different because, as I say, history weighing heavily uh, in the air in Cork today. It's a little uh, grey and overcast and drizzly, kind of reflecting possibly the sense of who we are and what happened 100 years ago today. Um, Just to put a bit of shape on the story in some ways, because I think sometimes when you uh, can be overloaded with facts and figures and information, uh, a very straightforward outline of what happened about two hours and 47 minutes ago to the very day Michael Collins and a party of men with him left this hotel. And they went down that beautiful marble corridor out the door and into a motorcade which passed first through McCroom and then took the Bandon Road via Crookstown and this led through Belnablaw uh, which is as you know an isolated crossroads uh, an ambush was laid by anti-treaty column there at the point and on the chance they thought that the convoy might come through again on their return journey so let's get forward to tonight between 7.30 and 8 o'clock, Michael Collins' convoy approached Bain Leblanc for the second time. And by that stage, most of the ambush party had said, we're gone. And they headed off and were gone for the day, leaving about five or six guys on the scene. And they opened fire with rifles on the Collins' convoy. Emmett Dalton, Free State Commander for the county, ordered the driver of the touring car to drive like hell. But Collins said, no, stop, we're going to fight them. And he jumped out from the car along with the others. And at first the group took cover behind a low grassy bank bordering the road. But then Collins jumped up, ran back along the road, began firing with his Lee Enfield rifle from behind the armoured car. But he left the protection of that very car and he fired a couple of shots. And as he was once more working the bolt of his rifle, working away on it, he was struck in the head by a bullet believed to have been fired by one of the ambushing party. Some say it was Dennis Sonny O'Neill, a former British Army sniper who knew how to reach his target, if you will. And Collins was the only fatality, imagine, sustained in the ambush. And he was found, I'm sorry to say, face down on the roadway. And there ended his time on earth and began a life as a 
martyr in some respects, but certainly a figure that around whom more what ifs have been asked than probably any other in modern Irish political history. What if he had survived? What if uh, De Valera and himself were to tussle in the doll rather than uh, with as ghosts in, in history during our time in the 20th century? And where would that have led us all as a nation, as a, as a people, and indeed as a generation? Um, and as you were watching, no doubt you were watching the coverage last night on the news of the commemoration event at Bail and Blaw. I mean, I never thought I'd see in my lifetime such an event where, first of all, they're saying that it was up to 10,000 people. To me, that showed how engaged Irish people are in our national story, how much we care about our, our history, how involved we are with who we are and where we might be going. I thought it was quite stunning to see young people, almost like a St. Patrick's Day parade of old, on the shoulders of their fathers and mothers and watching two men who in any other era of Irish history would have been at each other's throats, metaphorically, of course. But to see uh, the Taoiseach, uh, Corkman, um, man who knows his history, uh, standing up uh, as a Fianna Fáil leader um, at Bail na Blá to give that speech, uh, followed by that of the leader of Fine Gael, the Tánaiste, Leo Varadkar. Uh, both men uh, given very warm welcome from the crowd, in itself <laughs> an intriguing <laughs> proposition. Um, and it was a, 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 a day for uh, people who appreciate love and know history, which I think is most Irish people, uh, to kind of gather and say, well, that was extraordinary. And I think there's no doubt about it, that's what it was. Uh, and in the greater scheme of things, in the greater way of uh, modern politics and history, it's made all the more interesting uh, if we were to shop a little more locally as to what the implications of uh, those two men at that point in this week of Irish history and politics colliding, uh, what statement they might be making. And as has been commented already today, uh, it did make the, the potential for maybe... Um, Maybe a, a joining of forces between those two uh, sworn enemies for so many years. Maybe they might be rethinking that. Who knows? Uh, but certainly so many questions thrown up. Like I say, Michael Collins, as uh, somewhat of an enigma, uh, and certainly somebody who's, who made his mark in Irish history, but throwing up all those questions, the what-ifs and the hows and the whys. From the Ryan Tupperty Show. So how much sleep do you really need? Andrew Coogan is a behavioural neuroscientist and he was talking to Claire Byrne in the morning. So Andrew, this optimal amount of sleep according to our age is what? Are the old rules of the eight hours broken now? Or? Well, the, the rules indicate a sort of broader spread. So, for example, um, adults from about 25 to 65 are recommended to get between seven and nine hours sleep. So that's quite a spread within that. And that reflects that we are different, you mm. know. Um, sleep is an individual trait. So what works for me mightn't necessarily be what's optimal for you. And actually the guidelines say about an hour on either end, a plus or minus one hour is actually okay as well. So indicating that there is a there is a spread. And it's it's something I think we worry about a lot. We want people to be mindful of their sleep and to prioritize their sleep and their sleep health because we know there's lots of benefits of that. But we are mindful as well that we don't want people to become anxious that oh my god, I'm not getting enough sleep, I'm not getting nine hours sleep. Where for that person getting seven or even six hours sleep might, might be, be okay for them. Mm -hmm. And that's what the biology tells us that there's a like the great 
line from the life of Brian, you know, you're all individuals. We are all individuals and there is actually quite a spread. So it's, it's a balance in the message. Yes, sleep is important, but if you think you're OK and you don't have a problem, well, then you probably don't have a problem. And what about that question of storing sleep or catching up at the yeah. weekends? So, so this, is, this is a really hot topic in sleep science and sleep medicine at the moment. It's called catch-up sleep. So this idea that we accumulate a sleep debt, we don't get quite enough sleep during the working week. About 80% of us need an alarm clock to wake up during a working day. Um, and we do that because we're not ready to wake up yet. You know, if our bodies were left to their own devices, we wouldn't be awake. So that sleep debt accumulates and then maybe at the weekend or on a work free days, we sleep in a little longer and we sort of catch up on some of that deficit that we've accumulated. So the question is, does that um, catch up sleep mitigate any detrimental effects of the of the debt in the first place. And the evidence is sort of up in the air a little about it at the moment. We're not quite sure. Probably the best thing, if you can get sufficient sleep during the working week, do. That's better than trying to catch up. But if you can catch up, that is probably better than trying to not catch up, if you like, and trying to keep to the same schedule. Okay, and yeah. if you're at work operating on a deficit for a long period of time, that can have serious health yeah, implications. It, 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 it can, and it's, it's something, for example, we think a lot about for shift workers, shift workers who have to work through the night. So the night is actually the part where our biological rhythm is telling us, look, guys, we should be asleep. So our concentration, our cognition, they're all at their lowest levels. Our core body temperature is at its lowest level. And that... And shift workers tend to have less sleep when they get home to sleep, especially if they're night workers trying to sleep during the day. And we know that has what we term neurobehavioural consequences. So we know that can be associated with a higher rate of workplace accidents, um, lower even lower things like work productivity. So that there are a whole load of things in the short term that we want to try to avoid if we can. And not too surprisingly, there were many questions for Andrew. Maura wants to know, is it any harm to take melatonin every night? So melatonin in so melatonin in Ireland is available by prescription under a certain formulation. And that's obviously going to be taken under medical supervision. Melatonin can be very useful. It's not a panacea. I think melatonin in supplements, I would be more sceptical about that. Um, it's uncertain what type of concentration or doses are in it. It's not something we can buy over the counter. Um, so I think if you're using melatonin as a supplement, I think it would be better to maybe talk to your GP and actually get it formalised and get so you know exactly the dose you're taking, when to take it so it can work best mm-hmm. for you. And then you. you're getting advice on how long to take it Exactly, well. exactly. This listener goes to bed exhausted every night. I fall asleep for 30 minutes and wake up. I cannot get back to sleep. Ah, my mind is full of thoughts. My head is yeah. racing. I try to avoid sleeping during the day. Have you any suggestions? Yeah, so, so that's a classic description of something we call rumination where the mind racing you're going over all the problems during the day and that's a classic feature in insomnia and insomnia disorders um again if if that's an ongoing feature so it's been going on more than maybe four or five days a week for more than a month i think that's worth discussing with your GP because that's maybe indicative of something we call chronic insomnia there are 
behavioural things we can try to do, like widen out that wind down period to sleep. So de-stress, get rid of all those stressing thoughts if you can during the day. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, what tends to happen is then we get locked into this anxiety loop. Now I'm awake, I can't get to sleep. And now I'm worried that I can't get to sleep and I'll be worried about what I'll be like tomorrow. And we've got this vicious cycle. So we want to try to break the vicious cycle and this thing called cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. That's one of the things that aims to do. It's to break that cycle and to take away those stresses and ruminations and allow the person then to sleep. Because good sleep really begets more good sleep, mm-hmm. but bad sleep begets more bad sleep. So we want to switch to the to the positive cycle versus the negative vicious cycle. Okay, I've lost more questions yeah. for you, but not enough yeah. time, unfortunately, uh, Andrew. With somebody who has an, a habit of snoozing during the day, just a, a quick one on that. Are you, yeah, are so, you so happy this with is that? a question we're always asked. Um, if you nap during the day and you don't have problems getting to sleep at night, that's probably okay for you. Andrew Coogan from Today with Claire Byrne. And back to the Ryan Tuberty show in the Imperial Hotel where Michael Collins spent his last night. Here's Alan Flynn of the Flynn Hotel Group. Very much a grey day outside, but very much uh, a lovely feeling within the hotel and very much a sense of the history coming back to the hotel. As I said, it dates over 200 years and uh, we just feel as though it's an, an, an ideal opportunity for us to highlight and showcase the contribution that Michael Collins had made. To, no doubt about it. Tell us, yeah. what, what can you tell us about Michael Collins 100 years ago, uh, yesterday and the day before, and uh, the, his last days and his association with the hotel? With the hotel, he had stayed here a number of times previously and uh, he had stayed for the two nights before his uh, last journey to Bail of Law and, as I said, stayed in room 115. Mm. He was down to meet with members of... Uh, uh, he was uh, down to meet um, a no- quite a number of people sure. at that time and out to Bill Leblanc he went. OK. And the, the, the room 115 I was just describing there today, uh, the Michael Collins suite, did, did, you, did you have to um, put a lot of thought into what you wanted to do with that? Because there's a fine line between respect and uh, keeping the room and all these sort of things matter, don't yeah, they? Yeah, very much for us. Uh, it was, a, I suppose, a COVID project in the sense okay. that while we were closed, we thought quite a lot about the hotel and quite a, number, a lot about the people who had stayed here through the, through the years and I think of all the most iconic person would have been Michael Collins mm. so what we thought then was it was an ideal opportunity to take the room that he stayed in and very, very much make it a bespoke room within the hotel so yeah. in terms of the design and everything that we did we decided well let's go back to the 1920s and think about what the room would have been like at that time and we designed it very much in, in, in the period that it was in. Which it feels like anyway it's a very kind of deco uh, hotel anyway and uh, it has that lovely feel to it and I mentioned the extended Collins family are in the part of the restaurant this morning having a big breakfast I mean do you do did you collaborate with the family did you associate with them with, with regards to what to do with them with the story of their oh, relative? Very, very much so there's been a collaboration going on for almost two years now um, Fidelma had very kindly um, helped us out with the extended family okay. there was a reach out made to all of them so any of the family that w- there were uh, could like to come this morning they're all here with us I think we have over 60 yeah. in for breakfast this morning and it's lovely to see such a lovely feeling and uh, such a positive atmosphere 
uh, to celebrate his life. That's right. I mean, we we arrived yesterday evening about five o'clock, and the place is there's a, there's definitely a, a buzz, if that's the right word, probably not the right choice of word, but you know what I mean. There's a there's a great sense of of time and place here today. Absolutely. You can really feel it in the yeah, air. Yeah, very much. It's, as you say, it's a feeling. Mm. I like to think it's a positive feeling. Yeah. Um, and it's a way of celebrating an iconic. Uh, aside from anybody's politics, it's about just celebrating the contribution that he did. Uh, I mean, when you think of it, Ryan, he was a TD, he was a minister for finance, he was the chief negotiator, one of the chief negotiators for the treaty. Yes. And uh, his, his position was in the army. And yet, after all of that, his life was taken tragically at the age of 30. Alan Flynn from the Ryan Tuberty Show. Then later, Joe Duffy was also musing about Michael Collins and his last day. On this day, 100 years ago, Michael Collins would have been reading the front of the Cork Examiner as he left the Imperial Hotel this morning, so to speak, at 6am. The front of the Examiner reads, Cork stands, Cork stands intact. And if you come to town, you will find the stores as ready to serve you and as active as usual. That's from Roach's stores in 14, 15 and 16, Patrick Street in Cork Nat Ross according to this ad is the best remover and if you want chocolates in Cork go to F uh, H Thompson and Sons for the best bonbons and boxes of chocolates at all prices and if you went to, want the best tablecloths and the mask go to Dowden's in Patrick Street you know it well uh, for 19 and 6 you will get uh, 20 dozen Supervine serviettes, 20, 20 inch square, woven with a shamrock and ribbon border and spotted centre. And the 20 dozen will cost you a 19 and 6. Now, they're not your paper serviettes that we know today. They're actually woven. They're 19 and 6 a dozen. They've gone up since last week. Uh, furniture bargains for cash in 8, 9 and 10, Corn Market Street. Michael Collins would have had this letter, I suspect, not just in his hand, but also in his mind as he travelled around Cork today. 100 years ago. He received this letter from Kitty Kearn and his fiancée uh, just five days ago. My own darling Michael, poor Griffith's funeral is too awful for me to think of. May he rest in peace. Was he prepared, I wonder? When that hour comes, what good is anything else? We are just all bits of dust, the great as well as the small. He will be a loss to you. I can picture it. How unfortunate it should happen just now. He was, poor man, evidently overworked and took no holiday, or at least not in time. I'm always thinking of you and worrying, and just tonight somebody said, if you go to the funeral tomorrow, you'll be shot. But God is very good to you, and we must both do Loch Derg, sometime in Thanksgiving. Did you ever hear of it? It's very hard. I did it three times already. I'm sure you'll think this is a sermonising kind of letter. I'm very lonely tonight, and hate to have to go to old Belfast. Yet I only want you and wish to be near you. I'd love in the ordinary way to be going. Tom set are more than nice and I have a few friends there. But I've got a feeling that I'll be lonely this time and not interested. But it's not fair to bore you with this. I know all you have to contend with. Or rather, I'd rather not know at all. Are you lonely for me or too busy and too worried to think? I'll send you a kiss with my love. Yours, Kitty. And Michael Collins will be dead a few days uh, later. Tim Crowley of the Michael Collins Centre, Clannacilty in West Cork. Tim, good afternoon on this fateful day, a hundred years good later, afternoon. on this fateful date, a hundred years later. Where is Michael Collins now at this time, on this date? Um, we're talking about quarter to two. Um, I suppose he's, he's in Clannacilty for lunch. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the convoy had um, had come from uh, had driven from the Imperial and and through Coltrane onto McCroom. They came from McCroom to Bendon, and of course they drove through Bern the Blois. They were spotted driving through there by, by anti-treaty people, and then the convoy had gone from uh, into Bendon and then onto Clonakilty. And uh, it is said uh, one of Michael Collins' young soldiers in the convoy that day from up the country had never come across the women wearing the West Cork hooded cloaks. And, of course, uh, an awful lot of the Tlanakinti women at the time would have been wearing those. And uh, the, the soldier simply said to an officer, um, are they an order of nuns or what? And the officer said back, be very careful, as many as the revolver came out from underneath one of them. I can imagine. He was right because during the War of Independence, the coming among ladies in Clannacilty used to smuggle the, the revolvers underneath the cloaks for the for the IRA lads. But at this time, ten minutes to two, has Michael Collins' faith already been sealed? Well, the, the anti-treaty IRA, of course, he'd driven through in the morning, and the anti-treaty IRA had, had were having meetings in the Bianabla area by pure coincidence. And the, when the, the convoy uh, came in around nine o'clock, past the, the, the pub at the, the Block Crossroads, an anti-treaty sentry had seen them. Uh, the word was passed on to the local anti-treaty officers, and they had the meeting, and they decided that if the convoy came back in the evening, they would have an ambush um, waiting for them. Uh, so they, definitely the ambush would have been in, in uh, situ at this particular time 100 years ago. Tim there. Then Joe spoke about the Murray's safe house. And let's go to the house as such where the ambush is being planned. Uh, Niall Murray is a direct descendant of the Murrays uh, Bill and Mary Ann Murray um, whose safe house uh, was being used this time by the anti-treaty uh, forces in Cork uh, Niall, who was, who was in your house your, your, your grandparents' house at this time? Uh, hi Joel, yeah the, that, at this stage in the, in the day they were probably just wrapping up or near ending or had just ended their meeting it would have been um, mainly officers of what was the the West Cork IRA Brigade so um, men like Tom Hales and others uh, and others from the kind of Bandon and West Cork uh, mm-hmm. battalions of the IRA joined by more senior officers from the IRA Southern First Southern Division which would cover most of Munster including Liam DC, who himself was a West Cork man um, and they had been as as uh, as Tim was just saying, they'd by pure coincidence been arranged to meet uh, there on on that same day that Collins uh-huh. passed through earlier on. Um, but it, it, in ways, it wasn't a huge coincidence because uh, even any any good intelligence reports would, would have told Michael Collins that he really was passing through the the heartland of anti-treaty territory. Uh, not only had Cork been evacuated, but many of the forces who had evacuated Cork City a week or two earlier had gone to McCroom Castle, and it was only three uh-huh. three or four days before this again on before this day hundred years ago that McCroom Castle was evacuated, and many of the mid Cork forces were occupying the the farmhouses and. The farmlands around where Bailey Blaw lies in the kind and, of border if, between Mid and West if, Cork. If the regulars had got their hands on the Cork Examiner from today, a uh, hundred years ago, they, they would have almost read his itinerary as Michael Collins did or did this morning. The headline read uh, on page uh, three: General Collins in Cork, national troops advance, banned and occupied after short fight. Irregulars, futile ambushes, Lismore Castle saved, arrests in Cork, Southern Rail position, and then it goes into General Michael Collins is in Cork and he's, he's uh, going to inspect uh, in association, they say, with uh, military affairs and is visiting various troops and is heading out to Bandon. And they would have read that in the newspaper. But Niall, it, was it a big house with so many 
people at that meeting. Uh, Describe well, the house to me. Yeah, it's, uh, well, the, the house still stands. It's farmed still by my father's cousin, Tom and Louise and their family. And it's, the the, the original farmhouse is, uh, it would be, it would probably be a, a medium-sized, big, big-sized far, farmhouse in that day would have had been um, a large five or six windows to the front and outbuildings attached to either side and um, on a hillside with a, in, a, in an area that was fairly prosperous with dairy farming at that stage uh-huh. through the local co-op so yeah it was it was a big house and it, it was it was accustomed at that stage in 1922 to holding uh, to hosting big groups of men not just for meetings but as early as 1916 um, volunteers from around the Kinsale and South Cork area had, had billeted there overnight in the storm when, when they had been turned around at McCroom they were supposed to have taken part in the rising, so it was a, it was a, it was a, it was it, w- it was no small labourer's cottage like some of the, many of the, uh-huh. those houses that were also used in these times as safe houses. But, um, but it was it was it was but it was one of many dozen in this in this whole mid Cork area that would have been particularly during these early stages of the civil war, uh, heavily occupied by IRA. Niall Murray talking to Joe on the live line in the afternoon. And on today with Claire Byrne, facing the final curtain. Now, a question for you. What was the most important event you've ever planned? Was it your 30th birthday, your wedding? Would you put the same energy into planning your own funeral? Death, of course, isn't the easiest topic to discuss, but more and more people are taking control of their own funeral plans in an effort to make sure that it's done in the way that they want it and to save their loved ones the stress of organising the entire event. I'm joined by Kate Tim, who's co-founder of the Coffin Club, and Mary Conniff, who's a funeral director with Massey Brothers and board member of the Irish Association of Funeral Directors. You're both very welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Kate, I'm going to come to you first because you're co-founder of the Coffin Club in the UK. What is it? Yes. Well, thank you for asking. It's an educational platform that basically is um, to inform people of all the choices they have for their end of life celebrations slash uh, funeral slash perfect send off slash final farewell, Um, mainly so that people don't end up channeled into having you know either um, church or crematorium nothing wrong with that but we want them to know that other things exist so that they're not just channeled into doing it because they don't know that there's any other way. And what kind of people uh, become members of the coffin clubs? Why are they there? What interests them? Um, So people come to Coffin Club for myriad different reasons. Um, We'll usually have one person who is terminally ill, so obviously that's very relevant to them at that point in time. Um, We might have people who've just had experience of organising a funeral, be it for mum or dad or possibly a sibling, and they've somehow found the experience unsatisfactory they kind of want to take more ownership of it um so they come along for that reason it might be people who are getting into the final part of their life and they're suddenly thinking ah i've avoided thinking about this three quarters (laughs) of my life but maybe now um you know the time has come to take my head out of the sand I don't want to leave my kids not knowing what I want um, so I better get my ducks in a row Mary I know you feel really passionately about this and as I said you've worked as a funeral director for many years it is such a stressful time for families isn't it to try and plan this and think well what did mammy or daddy want 
It is, Claire, and really and truly, I've been championing pre-need and pre-arranging for over 20 years now, and I see firsthand when I sit in front of a family or meet a family in a you know, family room at a, in a hospital or hospice or around their own kitchen table at home, the, the, the emotional strain they're under and, and, and the difficulty it is to make a decision a, a right decision at that time as to what mum or dad or a sibling indeed for that matter or a child what is the mm-hmm. right decision to do here and what's the right thing to do here and I just find that um, if people had put some plan in place or, or or wrote something down it would make things an awful lot easier for families so a simple note a simple a letter note. a conversation yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, it doesn't take much. It's just, it's it's really, uh, the big decision is around burial or cremation and um, and uh, maybe some choice of music or the venue. Maybe they don't want a traditional funeral. Maybe they don't want a religious funeral. Maybe they just want a civil service or a simple service. And it's just to make somebody aware within the family that this is so important. And Kate spoke about having regrets about that last goodbye. I've had somebody say to me, oh, my mum wanted to go up and touch the coffin at the end of the service. She didn't know if she was allowed to, so she didn't do it. And then it's all she talks about is I didn't go and say goodbye properly to your dad, you know. And so if something is, you know, not right for that person in the funeral setting, that's what they will remember. They won't remember the things that went well. They will remember that I didn't go and say goodbye properly. So, yeah, you know, I, I just wonder, given Kate, where you are and where we are and the, and the people that Mary is dealing with, Mary, do you find that people are reluctant here to talk about planning or when it comes to death and funerals? It's not so much that they're reluctant to talk about planning, Claire. I find the reluctance is with families in opening the discussion and discussing it. I find that uh, I, I, I meet families or I meet a couple maybe that comes in to do a prearrangement and that's oh, now we have to go home and talk to the children and the children don't want to hear this. And <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I would advise if a person brings it up at whatever stage, open the discussion, open the, the chat line, let people talk freely about what they feel they might want. When people get to a certain age and stage in life, they worry about their end of life arrangements. They worry about their funerals. Let it be whether oh. it's a burial or cremation situation or whether it's a financial situation. Or, you know, they, they, they have little worries. And it's very important to hear those out discuss them and 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 get a feel for what they really want. I'm sure, Mary, though you do have people who come to you and will say, I want to start paying for my funeral now so that it's not a burden for my family when I'm gone. Yes, yes. And and that can be a big concern because uh, when at, at people, when they're at a certain stage in life, they have children with large mortgages and maybe kids in college or whatever. So they're in a position now where they can put a few bob by or start paying into a plan or now people prepayment is as old as the hills. I mean, people always give a few bob to the funeral director or the undertaker to put by to keep to have there for when the, the funeral happened. But 
people are it's more structured now people are coming they're getting a cost for their funeral and whether they're doing a prepaid plan with their funeral director or going to their credit union or on post and lodging that money there so that it's there and they have the peace of mind of knowing that that funds are there it's 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 looked after yeah Kate I know you help people as well through the coffin club to pick a coffin and people are opting for very simple options now like the flat pack coffin yeah yeah, I mean, we um, have that as an option that you can decorate uh, your own coffin. Um, I mean, it's better for people who actually are terminally ill because obviously, as Mary will know, if you don't know the circumstances of your death, you don't necessarily know, A, that you're going to fit in that coffin <laughs> um, or B, that you'll even need one. You know, if you die in an enormous gas explosion and there's nothing left of you, you're not going to need a coffin. Um And the other thing is people sometimes come to coffin club thinking they want a coffin. Then they realise they could have a shroud or they could leave their body to medical science and therefore not need a coffin. So there's lots of, you know, reasons why you might not need a coffin. But if you've decided you do want one, you can come and decorate one of our flat pack coffins which then at a point of need are put together with an allen key but in the meantime you can keep them stored under your sofa you know (laughs) under the bed wherever you like (laughs) until you um i'm not sure i'd be delighted now if i had to look at my flat pack coffin every day in my house (laughs) i'm not sure i'd be delighted if i had to transport it wondering was it safely put together Oh, they're very sturdy, very, very sturdy. Nice, solid bottoms, Mary, you'll be pleased to hear. Kate Tim of the Coffin Club and Mary Kniff of Massey Brothers from Today with Claire Byrne. And back to the Ryan Tuberty show from the Imperial Hotel in Cork, where some of Michael Collins' family were marking the centenary of his death. Fidelma Collins, grandniece of Michael Collins, good morning. It's a day of ifs, isn't it? What ifs? It's a day of ifs, but it's also a day of celebration and commemoration. Okay. And for the family, it's wonderful that the people of Cork, the people of Ireland, including RTE, have embraced the whole story and have given us um, wonderful memories. You, RTE, were there yesterday at Bailnablaw. You're here today. Um, The Imperial Hotel are doing a wonderful job in remembering Michael Collins. So it's been a very, very special time for the Collins family. Has it been emotional? It has been incredibly emotional. In what sense? Well, by my level now, we're the grandnieces, grandnephews. So we are remembering our parents and our grandparents. Our grandparents were Michael Collins's brothers and sisters, and our parents were his nieces and nephews. So it's bringing back huge memories for us within the family. Um, I can't even describe the emotion, actually, how it's been. I've, I've cried a few times, yeah. and that's OK, too. Oh, it's very healthy. Um, I'd love to know, and I'm not trying to to push or be prurient, but at what point did you find yourself going over the edge in a manner of speaking? Where did you find yourself thinking, oh, crikey, this is is really beautiful or heavy or what have you? Um, Well, I suppose for me, my dad was a TD in West Cork. So I had that very strong Collins thing where people would come up to my dad and say, you're Michael Collins' nephew and all that sort of stuff. And then suddenly I was getting... You're his grandniece. And I 
I was actually in Skibbereen last week and a man came up to me and he said, I remember you when you were a baby. Really? Stuff like that. I remember your dad. I remember your grandfather. So all that emotion, it's very strong. Yes. Um, and not just for me, but for everybody. Um, Cork has become... Collins heaven in one sense. The city council gave us a civic reception on Saturday, which was really nice and we all appreciated it. And then on Saturday night, 223 of us gathered together to have dinner. And there were three generations there and it was wonderful. Yeah, the story lives on. And, you know, um, you you and I, we're not necessarily the same age, but we we come from families that are very political Mm -hmm. and steeped in in history and Mm -hmm. steeped in Ireland, Okay. Um, and with that in mind, I thought I was kind of saying it, suggesting it earlier on the programme that whether you're anti-treaty or pro-treaty, I felt yesterday that lovely gathering. It didn't matter a damn. It's gone. All the people that have been around for this week in Cork, in Clonakilty, whatever, they've been there. There's been no political divide. It's been pure, solid, celebrating somebody that helped found the state. And though. I had none of that animosity yeah. that existed years ago. You and I know it from That's right, our yeah. political families. That's right. But we've progressed from that and we've seen it progressing from that. Yeah. And wow, yesterday was just the culmination of it. Michal and Leo, yeah. they're together. Yeah. And it wasn't put on. You know, it was genuine. They both wanted to be there together. They both spoke really well. And we as a family were thrilled that they were both up there together. And the crowd. Oh, crowd. Like the number. Uh, of people, the enthusiasm, the passion, the appreciation and the respect. Oh, the respect is tremendous, isn't it? It's, you can it's just remarkable. feel it. And the generations, the young mums and dad there with their kids in the That's buggy. Right. Yeah. It was roasting hot. There was loads of, there was a huge crowd. They still came with the smallies and the little toddlers and all the rest. They will remember yesterday and in a very positive way, not in a negative way. You, you said, Fidelma, just uh, when I said it, about the civil war politics mm. as we know them, as, we, as, as, as our generations mm. and families knew them, you said very emphatically, it's gone. Yeah. And I met some of your relatives uh, who are under the age of 10 mm-hmm. in the, in the restaurant yeah. earlier on, right? These gorgeous kids, all related to, of course, Michael Collins. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what's, what's your Ireland going to look like? Because you're up next, you know, in some ways, in 10 years' time when they've got the vote and... Uh, they're looking at their their great great grand uncle, yeah. what have you. Um, will they be? Will they? Will will he be ancient history? Because Michael Collins is still, I think, near history to some well, extent. On Saturday night, we had thirty-two under twelve-year-olds mm. in our gathering, and they. So for them, they were all young enough to really enjoy it, but also they were. They, can, they will remember it. You know, they were from five and six upwards. Yeah. So it was a huge occasion. They will remember it. So I think the history of Collins, we're not trying to keep the Civil War history going, but we want to keep his memory going. Yes. And we want to keep the love that we have for him going. Fidelma Collins there. Then historian Bartle Darcy was looking at the life of Michael Collins. There was a, a special night last night for so many reasons here in the Imperial. Yes, Ryan, it was. And um, down here, we had two movie premieres last night that were linked in, obviously, with the centenary and mm-hmm. the imperial. And the first one was a short film that I worked on with 
uh, director Jason O'Funon from Mullingar, and it was about Pat O'Hagan, who's the president of the Irish Volunteers Commemorative Organisation. And he has the biggest collection of revolutionary artefacts from 1913 to 1923. And then the second one was very personal for the Collins family that was in attendance. It was a documentary by Marcus Howard, and it was entitled Michael Collins, The Last Days, and it was leading up to okay, are they available for people to watch broadly? They, uh, yes, Marcus's one is available on EasterRisingStories.com right. and also he's releasing his next one today which actually deals with the day itself of oh, Bailnabla, right, right. the last six hours. I look forward to watching both of those things and great uh, uh, useful tools for history students and teachers around yeah, the country. Absolutely yeah. and uh, Marcus's work is like a free resource. He's done Amazing. tons of documentaries all the way from 1916 upwards. His, his relative was involved in Dundalk and that's what started me first. I met him when I was working in 2016 on the centenary of the Rising and it's a, it's a great resource for people. And Pat O'Hagan, you mentioned him, he's got the, 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 the largest private collection of all this revolutionary material which includes uh, original 1916 proclamations. Yes. Plural? Uh, yes, no, plural. That's quite something. There aren't too well, many of those. No, that's right. Yeah, There's only about 50 left in, yeah. in circulation there. He also has, a, he has three himself. He also has a half one. The half one is particularly interesting because the half one is the one that was printed off by the British soldiers when they found the typeset left in the printer in Liberty Hall. Amazing. Printed off 14 copies, 10 were used in the court martials and four remained and he has one of those. And he has Michael Collins' army revolver, is that right? He does and that's, we mentioned that last night when we were here, it's a very pertinent date. Michael Collins gave it to a musician called Thomas Devlin on the 6th of January 1922 and he was in Devlin's bar on Parnell Square and that was the day before the treaty vote, Ryan. How did he end up giving his revolver to a musician the day before the treaty vote? Because we're looking at it in hindsight a little bit now, was it symbolic that he was knowing that Ireland is moving from war to to a, a form of peace mm -hmm. that he was able to hand over his personal revolver to the musician in gratitude and we have the provenance from that and then the next day the treaty vote. How old was Michael Collins' father when uh, Michael Collins was born? Well, Michael Collins' father, and I do this when we're on tour as well, he was 75 when Michael was born. And then when you say that, people go, oh my God, that's, you know, back in the day, it wasn't actually that strange because a lot of men were more, were older than their, than their wives because you had, really had to wait for your mother to die before you could bring another woman into the house in a, in a tradition in the country. Okay, so it, as you, you say, we, people listening will be going, what? And then go, yeah. oh no, it's, it's yeah. of its time. And of that's, its that's time. What, that's yeah. what happened. Um, and his dad, as you understand it, uh, was uh, he, he was just one of those naturally bright people, uh, mathematics being... Yes, and he was particularly marked out there in school when he was attended Clonakilty. He had a schoolmaster there who was a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Is Michael himself? Michael himself, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, it was Michael himself. And um, he was particularly marked out and he, he left school at 15. He passed the exam to go into the post office in, in London too as well. He worked in the savings bank over there. So very astute and that's where later on marked him out as a great organiser. Okay, that gets him to the London GAA, recruited into the Irish Republican Brotherhood by... Sam Maguire. Uh, famous for... Famous for having <laughs> the cup named after I mean, this Ireland. is just crazy. And, yeah. and he gets uh, recruited uh, by Sam Maguire and then he goes back to Dublin. It's early 1916. Low-level job, high-level position, high-level geography. Yes. In 1916, you know what I mean yeah. by that? No, absolutely. And he was there, he was aide-de-camp to, um, to Plunkett in the GPO. Oh. And uh, he has written about his experience in the GPO. And he was very, he played a, a great role in the escape from the GPO going down Moore Street. There's a particular incident where there was a British machine gun and the volunteers were stuck. And it was at the area known as the White House. And he managed to get a cart pushed into place and made a barricade so the volunteers could progress down Moore Street. 
Again, logistical mind, uh, possibly mathematically helpful to have your maths as well as everything yeah. else. But, but to have your senses about you when the bullets are flying around you. What age was he in 1916? He, he was been. in his early 20s there. He was, I mean, 18, 1890s. So <laughs> it's born, quite so. something. Yeah, and he's coming from a post office to a war zone yeah. in a post office. So he was he was something else, really, in he fairness. Was. And, yeah. um, and that's not just myth. That's fact. Like, yes. Here are the facts, Mr. Yeah. Grad Grind. So let's uh, discuss them as we have them before us. Uh, he gets to Frangak. He's a... Uh, Frangak, he's interred there in, in it's a camp in Wales and it's there that people go ah leadership material yes because it's there that he gets his kind of nickname the big fella because they're saying he has big ideas because he knows from his experience himself but also coming from a long pedigree of revolution there his great or his grandfather would have been involved in 1798 the family were quite political he knows that the major problem with Irish uprisings was the informer uh, and that the English knew what they were doing before they did it. Bartle Darcy from the Ryan Tuberty Show. Then later on the live line, more from the family of Michael Collins. Michael O'Mahony, Michael, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Good and you afternoon. were you were directly related to the big fella. Um, and, and, t- and you t- talk t- about all, everything being local, Joe. I'm, yeah. I'm sitting in Art Navaha in Balnascarthy at the moment, oh, uh, wow. looking looking at a Ford car in front of me here. Yeah, at the Incredible. Small word, isn't it? A small, yeah. small word. Tell us your connection and your memories, Michael. Well, my, my grandfather was Johnny Collins, Michael's eldest brother, uh, yeah. who, who was 12 years older than Michael. He was 1878 and Michael was 1890. And, uh, and when, when their father died in 1897, Johnny was the sort of uh, father figure, if you like, mm-hmm. with an age gap of 12 years. Uh, my uh, Johnny had a, a, nine children. Uh, Michael, the first, died uh, at age two, and then you had uh, Mary, nineteen oh nine. My mother, Kitty, nineteen ten, yeah. and then all the way down to Liam Collins, who was responsible for the Woodfield development in nineteen ninety on the anniversary of of, of uh, Michael, the hundredth year of Michael's birth in, in nineteen ninety. So um, my, Kitty, Kitty was. Was t- would be 10 at the time the house was burnt in Woodfield and would have been just 11 at the, at the time we're talking about the uh, 22nd of August 1922. And what, what, we, what did you hear of their memories of various people? I know some of them weren't actually there when, when uh, Michael Collins called, but what, what were their memories as told to you over the years of that day? Well, they, they rarely talked about it. Either Mary, who was Mary Pierce afterwards from the stole, uh, or mm-hmm. Kitty, my mother, who was Kitty O'Mahony, uh, would uh, would talk too much about the relationship because, for various reasons, we we, we can develop or somebody else will develop up of, of silence mm-hmm. was the best therapy because of the civil war and yeah. the embarrassment, the trauma, and so on. But the uh, Mary and Kitty were uh, in Clonakilty on that day and Tim Patton mentioned uh, Colin stopping by as if he was sort of saying a final goodbyes to a lot of people on roadsides and everything. But after he had left, on the, this is on the way back from uh, going out as far as Skibberine, on the way back he stopped at Sam's Cross, which is the yeah. Four Alls pub, a famous place, yeah. just uh, a, a, a hill, a quarter of a mile down the hill behind the Four Alls is Woodfield, but the road was too narrow for Michael to drive up to it, so he drove up to the Four Alls. Uh, Johnny Collins, my grandfather, came up from down below, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, meanwhile, 
and they were there on for half an hour or so, and and uh, they were leaving there at six fifteen or so p.m. And they on the way through Clonakilty, among the people they sort of very shortly stopped with was John John O'Crowley, who was the photographer and took many of the early pictures of Michael Collins. Uh, that are now famous, yeah. obviously. And uh, inside, by chance, was his two eldest nieces from the Johnny Collins line, uh, uh, Mary and Kitty. Okay. Uh, and uh, Michael came uh, sweeping into the house, as was his wont anyway. And uh, the, the, the lady saw him rushing towards them because he always picked them up. And he picked up my mother, uh, went to hug her, and she said, Uncle Michael, I'm too old to be kissed. And... She carried that crucible silently yeah. for so many years, and then you know. Well, what age? Now, what age? She eleven, twelve. She was. She was. She was uh, September nineteen ten. So she was. She was just 12, growing, yeah. almost twelve. And, and she says, "Uncle Michael, I'm too old to be kissed." Yeah, and then when she was eighty six, out in Our Lady's Manor in 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 Dockey, uh, she said shortly before she died, "You know, Michael, just thinking of all those times, and I know your interest in that." Mm-hmm. I, sh- I should have let Uncle Michael kiss me. So that, that was, she was carrying that all those years. And there was also a connection through Michael's grandmother, Nancy O'Brien. Nancy, Nancy, my, my direct grandmother, uh, who was the children of all the children born at Woodfield up to Liam mother, Collins, yeah. uh, were, were, were uh, the, my grandmother was Cathy Harley from Drina, whose brother Jack, uh, Sean Hurley was the only corpsman killed in 1916 on Church Street. Wow. He was in the Four Courts Battalion there and outside the father Matthew Hurley was shot. Yeah. Uh, and Cathy Hurley had uh, those children right up to Liam in January 1920. And uh, I keep mentioning Liam because he was so critical to the later development of Woodfield and all, all around. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, along with, with people like Jim Crowley and that. But the the in in uh, in nineteen uh, Johnny married again. He had eight children. The house was burnt in April nineteen twenty one. There was a diaspora of all those kids. Uh, my mother and and Mary w- went up to Horseleap and uh, to Kathy Hurley's sister uh, Maloney up in Horseleap, uh, uh, and then then went to Ring. And now we're in were in, as I say, getting their school uniforms to go to the Dominican Convent, which is that Nancy Har- O'Brien, who was a second cousin once removed of Johnny's, okay. in O'Brien, and she she had been one of Michael Collins' intelligence officers inside the GPO, and it's a wow. huge story about Nancy O'Brien, an extraordinary lady. And she, she then became my grandmother afterwards, but she married Johnny, okay. second marriage, in yeah. September 2022, very shortly after Michael Collins died, and she took over minding uh, the, okay. the, the first family children, and then had two more children, Michal Collins, who for many years, who died in, in, in 2000, and was many years the Collins speaker at, at Bain Le Blau every year, okay. and Nancy, two more children in, in, in those years. And was Johnny, and my, Johnny Collins was widowed, was he? He was widowed yeah. because uh, Cathy Hurley yeah. died of TB on the 3rd of February 1921, two months before the house was born. So this traumatic uh, and uh, sad event yeah, for yeah. the whole of that uh, generation of mother dying February, house burnt 
to the ground. My, yeah. my mother particularly talking, you know, about I wanted to go back into the fire to, to get my school mm. bag because I'd be killed at school down in Lissabar the next morning if I didn't have my school bag. And no, not allowed. And the man in charge of that burning section was was uh, Major uh, Arthur E. Percival uh, of the Essex Regiment there. Uh, and if I may say so, Joe, when I when I came down as an apprentice and lived with my grandparents, uh, Johnny and Nancy, uh, Nancy said to me, "You know, Michael, uh, when when we in 1942, February 42." read of the humiliating surrender of the British forces of the Japanese in Singapore, well, 80,000 yeah. troops. And we heard that the commanding officer was Lieutenant General Arthur E. Percival. Okay. We said, there's no road without a turning. And he was he was there for the burning of the house. But Nancy was... So, uh, so Arthur, Captain Arthur Percival, who surrendered with great ignominy, surrendered to a smaller force, didn't he? And he was, he was, he, he led the, the boarding of the Collins household. Yeah. And when then they heard of what happened to him, his ignominy and his cowardice, uh, what, 30, 24 years later, what did they say? There's no road without a turning. There's no road without a turning. In other words, the, this vengeance is reason. Michael O'Mahony on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, American gun laws. It starts with an American mother teaching her child what to do if there's an active shooter in their school. Teacher calls over the intercom, says it's not a drill. Everybody go in the corner and be really quiet and still. What do you do? Be on the corner and be really quiet and still. Now show me how you use your bulletproof backpack. Okay, good job. If a teacher says, Weston, you don't need your backpack, let's get in the corner. I say... No, I need it. It's bulletproof. If the police are outside the door, but the shooter is in your room and they call out, is anybody in there? What do you do? I say, I'm here. Absolutely not. You don't say a word. Okay. If the shooter is in there, you do not say a word. You stay absolutely silent. Okay. You get out of the building. Where do you go? Where do you run? Outside. Where outside? Home. You run as far away from the school as you can go. Okay. Mom will find you. Gosh, it's chilling, isn't it? It's the voice of an American mother teaching her five-year-old son what to do if there's an active shooter in his school. Now, the video was shared widely online last week, prompting disbelief and discussions about gun control in the United States. And students, of course, across the US are starting to return to school. And there's a focus on where the next battlefields in America's gun law wars will be. Marion McKeown is US correspondent with The Business Post. She joins me on the line now. Good morning, Marion. That video and the audio we heard there of the mother and, and son, it's hard to watch and to listen to. Maybe it's a thing that Americans are more used to seeing, but for us, it's horrifying, really. Yeah, you know, Claire, it's it's a really strange thing. But as you say, here there is a sort of, it's almost baked into the cake here now that uh, back to school, I mean, for most kids, it's the new shoes, the new backpack, probably the new uniforms. But there is a, a dread in America that when children are going back to school, will they be the victims of a school shooting? And it's it's a very, very real threat. You know, in, in um, there were, I think there were 200 
goodness, I think 100, 120 school shootings in the past four years. That's about 50 a year. And when you take that uh, in two of those years, there was lockdown. You know, all the schools were closed. So so that, you know, it, that's even a below average rate. So there, there is a chance, unfortunately. We saw it in Uvalde, of course, Sandy Hook, of course, all the other schools as well, Park Elementary, that when, when school shootings happen, they tend to kill a lot of innocent children and teachers as well and as you say that woman Cassie Walton from Oklahoma 22 year old mother of two children her little boy Weston five years of age and she is showing him he has a bulletproof proof insert in his backpack now the fact that his five year old child going to to kindergarten school has a, a bulletproof insert in his backpack it in itself seems very shocking to us but there is a trade at the moment in getting bulletproof backpacks for kids in getting those inserts for children for their jackets also for their backpacks and there was another report earlier this week about a, a, a mother who made a, a Kevlar dress for her five-year-old daughter now you know you wonder like obviously that's going to be of, of limited help in, in, in the situation and, and maybe it's to make the children feel safer or so that the parents feel less worried. But as I say, it's, it's a very real part of back to school for American children and their parents. And we wanted to talk a, a bit, Marion, about gun control because it, it is such a divisive subject. It is, of course, centre stage amongst lawmakers and activists. Now, in June, there was a move by President Biden when he signed into law this gun control bill. Will you talk us through that and where we stand with gun control from a legislative point of view? Sure. Uh, this, this was a bipartisan um, Safer Communities Act and, and it, it, by bipartisan I mean that 15 um, Republican senators signed on to it. Now, you know, that, that might seem, given how divisive and polarising the gun debate is, that might seem like progress. But in fact, at least four or five of those senators are retiring and not running again. And, you know, a couple like Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collin, are, they're from moderate states that are pro-gun um, control. So it's really not hugely, it's not as bipartisan as, as you might think. Uh, personally, I think, and I've spoken to a number of, of um, gun control advocates you know it's the, the main thing about this act is that it was passed it's a bit like the elephant dancing you know you don't you don't ask how good it is how well he dances it's more the fact he can do it and i think this applies with this act there is uh, the main provisions are it provides 750 million dollars to states to enforce red flag laws um now about 19 states in america currently have red flag laws and that means that if you're considered by a member of your family or a colleague at work or a friend to be a danger to yourself or potentially your family, they can go to court and, and get an order to have your gun taken from you so that you'll no longer be able to access or possess a gun. Uh, these can be temporary. Sometimes these orders are issued for a couple of months, sometimes a couple of weeks. But it is something that in America, a lot of, you know, we hear a lot about mass shootings, but everyday domestic violence instances end in the deaths of women and children and and these happen largely with men husbands partners whatever who have guns and they use them as i say to terrorize and and kill their families in a lot of cases marion mckeown from today with claire byrne and that's it for playback daily so mind yourself till next time